0: Well, hey, fans of Biblical Genetics, welcome back to another exciting episode in which I do my best to explain how COVID-19 testing works. The three different types of tests, what they mean, how they're done, and how do we interpret the results, how accurate they are, and things like that. I did not intend to be gone for several weeks. Now, I knew I was going to miss one week just because of my busy schedule. I, I knew I was going to have to skip a week. and that, That's fine. It's going to happen occasionally. But after that, I'm going to call this the saga of the SD card. I filmed a TV show remotely. The producer sent a whole bunch of equipment. They sent cameras, they sent lights, they sent microphones, they sent SD cards. They sent all the stuff for me to film remotely using Skype. And they were in their studio, and I'm in mine. It's supposed to be high def and really good looking. And we, we worked, we worked, we worked on this. And then as I'm packing up afterwards, I got the SD cards confused because I had used my camera as a backup camera. And he had sent an SD card for me to use there. And I thought I had it straight. And when he got it back, he's looking at my biblical genetics footage. And he's like, where's my, my TV show? <laughs> and so I had to go back in the studio. Sure enough, the card was sitting in a very obvious spot, right where I had placed it. Ah! So I put it in an envelope and I sent it to him. And he sent my card back to me. But it never got here and i was watching fedex tracking every single day i was refreshing multiple times a day. i was watching this thing it, it left pittsburgh it got to philadelphia it got to atlanta it got to our local place it got on the truck it couldn't be delivered for some reason it went back to the place it got back on the truck it went back to the place it sat at the place it sat at the place and after a week i'm like this thing's not coming so i ran out to best buy and i got a new card and i was shocked that they had such little inventory there's only two sd cards in this big empty rack so i grabbed one of them which i which would be okay and I went and I did some b-roll at a a local Civil War place that I was going to use for another episode and I filmed a um, a memorial service uh, at church an outdoor memorial service that we had I did some extra footage that I was going to give to um, one of the pastors who was just doing uh, a a filming from one place so he could you know do some cameos and some some pans and some zooms and slow-mo and it was gonna be really cool but none of that worked Turns out that SD cards have different write speeds and I picked one up that was too slow for the camera and everything failed. I was like, oh no. So now I'm an extra week behind and then I go and I um, I order one on Amazon finally. I said, okay, I'm just going to get it done. I ordered it and instead of overnight, it took five days. <laughs> I was like, stop, just give me my SD card. And so now I know that I could have done an audio anytime I wanted to because right now I'm just... You know, recording off of my headset onto my computer using Audacity. I didn't need my camera, but because I'm also doing a YouTube show and I'm basing this podcast off of that, I just had a hard time separating the two, and I did not know it was going to take so long. So there you have a long explanation of my long delay. And now we're going to get back into it, and I hope you enjoy this. I think it's going to be cool. There's just really neat science happening with coronavirus, and we're learning a lot, and the cool Technologies that we're using to detect these things and to sequence them and to find out if you're sick or if you have been sick is just really interesting. So, here you have it without any further delay how COVID 19 testing works. On this episode of Biblical Genetics, COVID 19 testing, how it's done. How accurate are the tests and what do the results mean? I'm gonna break up the discussion into three subjects because there are three different tests. There is a antibody test for antibodies that you produce. There's an antibody test for proteins that the virus produces. And there's a DNA test for the RNA that the virus produces. Okay, very complicated. Let's get into it one step at a time. First, the antibody test. After you have an infection, your body starts producing Antibodies. Most people know that. It's really simple. You get sick, you make antibodies, and the antibodies can kill off the virus and protect you for the next time you might be exposed to the virus or the bacterium. I'm going to include three links. One is to an article from the Mayo Clinic, another is to an article from Science Magazine, another is an article from researchamerica.org. These three groups have put together some fantastic information. I found it very helpful when I finally found those things on the internet for me to understand what was happening and how they go through these testing. But before we get to how the test works, we have to understand how the immune system works. A B cell is part of your immune system that is coated with potential antibodies. Your body makes a few billion random antibodies and it coats the B cells. And as they float around, they bump into things. And when something sticks to the B cell, it says, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't belong in my body. And it will start making more of that antibody lots and lots more. The first type of antibody it makes, though, is called IgM, or immunoglobulin M. Immunoglobulin. Literally, it's something that makes globs in the immune system. It's an antibody, a Y-shaped molecule that's very sticky, and it sticks to things that aren't supposed to be in your body. And when lots of them stick together to make a blob, like maybe coating a virus or a bacterium that's infectious. And then another immune system cell will come and eat that blob and digest it. That's one of the primary ways your body deals with infection by making immunoglobulin M. But the M's, they don't last very long in your body. It takes several days for you to start producing them, sometimes more than a week. And then they're slowly replaced with something called IgG or immunoglobulin G. That is your long-term immune system. That is your immune memory. That is the, the things that are floating around in your body ready to attack the next time you get exposed to something that you've already recovered from. So looking at the IgG and the IgM, we can actually see where in the infection cycle a person is. The thing is that the antibody tests, they don't work for a new infection. If you're sick with it or if you've just been exposed to it, or if you're starting to produce it and you have not yet come down with the sickness, the antibody test is completely worthless. It's really good for after the fact. Have you had the sickness, not do you have the sickness? So again, in science, there's always trade-offs. You want it fast, you want it cheap, you want it reliable, you can't have all three. Now the way the test works is really cool. What they do is they take a bodily sample from you, and blood or saliva or sputum, and they put it on a piece of paper and it starts soaking through that piece of paper. And as it does so, it passes a zone where they have placed proteins from the coronavirus that have been coated in microscopic gold particles. Interesting. And so if you have antibodies for that protein, they'll stick to the protein. And they'll keep on absorbing through the paper and they'll pass through a zone where they have made antibodies for your IgM antibodies. Yeah, antibodies for antibodies. And those antibodies will grab onto your antibodies and the gold then will start to accumulate in a line and it'll make sort of like a pinkish reddish stripe on the piece of paper. And as the sample continues to soak through the paper, it'll get to a zone where they have placed antibodies for your IgG antibodies. So if you're producing IgG antibodies that have now grabbed onto the coronavirus protein with the gold on it, it will get to that part in the paper and it will start making another reddish pinkish line if there's IgG. And after that, there's a control area where they make sure that things are working correctly but that's really cool they can detect for igg or igm or both and they can tell if you have a recent infection or an older infection just from that but there are some problems with this first of all the tests aren't perfectly specific they have to guess which antibody you're going to produce you don't have to produce exactly the antibody they thought there's lots of antibodies that can potentially stick to a coronavirus protein second it's possible that your antibodies can stick to another protein that doesn't come from the coronavirus. See, the way an antibody works is it's designed to match a pattern on a protein. A protein, the surface of it might have positive zones and negative zones and hydrophobic, hydrophilic areas. And so the antibody is complementary to that and it'll stick. But There's a lot of different places where it sticks. And if one of those zones isn't quite right, it doesn't matter. It'll still stick because antibodies aren't perfectly specific. So an antibody that's designed for one protein could theoretically stick to another protein. Even worse, a similar protein for maybe a coronavirus that causes the common cold, not COVID-19. So the tests are not perfectly specific. Also, they're not highly sensitive. I mean, think about it, the way it works is it makes a pink band. And the human eye has to be able to see it. So if there's not enough antibody present, it's not going to have a reaction on on the strip. So they're like 50 to 90% accurate. And they're no good for testing if you have it presently. It's only after the fact. The second test is called an antigen test or a protein test. It's looking for proteins being manufactured by the virus when you are actively infected by the virus. The First test is only after the fact. This is an active test. It's fast. It's cheap. It's not extremely accurate though. Again, there's trade-offs every time we do one of these tests. So what they do is they take a sample from you and they put it on another piece of paper and they let it soak through the paper. And it passes through two zones where there are antibodies for the same protein. Two different antibodies directed for the same protein, usually the S protein on the coronavirus. So they have to get two different antibodies for the same protein that don't cross-react with any other proteins anywhere in the known world. That's a trick. And they put it on the paper And as that sample soaks through, again, it's going to make two different bands if it's a positive test. It's only 50 to 90% accurate. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's limited. But think about this. If it's positive, the doctor says, hey, you have coronavirus, we're going to take steps now. It's a quick and dirty way to know if you have coronavirus. It's just a lot of times it gives you a false negative. So you really have it even if the test says you don't. Every once in a blue moon, it'll tell you you have it when you don't. It's called a false positive, but those are really rare. Either way, it's a great, simple test with limited application if you want to know really quickly with some reasonable degree of accuracy whether you have coronavirus. Now, the third test is a DNA test. And I'm a lot more familiar with this test than the others because I performed a lot of these techniques myself. When I was cloning fluorescent protein genes from corals, what I did was I took the coral and I ground it up and then I extracted the RNA from the coral. And then I took the RNA and I converted it into DNA using an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. And once I had DNA of the RNA, I took that and I put that into bacteria. Now bacterial genes and eukaryotic, coral, humans, monkeys, you know, complicated animals, they have different genes. In fact, the eukaryotic genes have introns in the middle, intervening spaces that aren't made into protein. They have to be cut out and thrown away in the RNA and the RNA is joined together to make the messenger RNA. But by taking messenger RNA out of the coral, all the introns were removed. When I put it into bacteria, the bacteria could manufacture the protein. And what was really cool was literally 24 hours, I went from coral to bacterial plate and looking at the bacterial plate every once in a while, one of those colonies had a color to it. And I knew that that bacteria was producing a coral fluorescent protein Gene that was in a coral just the day before all right with that background Let me explain to you what happens when you go to the testing center and they take that 20 foot long cotton swab And they stick it into the back of your skull. Yeah that test what they do is they'll take that sample They'll put it in some buffer and some other chemicals and they'll expose it to reverse transcriptase now reverse transcriptase is an enzyme discovered in viruses called retroviruses first discovered in the 1970s made really famous by hiv during the aids epidemic Because one of the classic things that the HIV virus does is reverse transcriptase makes copies of the RNA and then the DNA can stick into the genome of a human being. So people that are HIV positive have copies of the virus in their own genomes. Weird. But in this case, they take the coronavirus RNA, expose it to reverse transcriptase that makes DNA, and then they run it through a system called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. Hmm, big words again. A polymerase is an enzyme that copies DNA. You have polymerases, in fact, you have reverse transcriptase in your body too, but your polymerases are constantly copying DNA. Usually they use a bacterial polymerase that can handle the high temperatures they're about to expose it to. Because the first thing they do is they take the sample with a lot of other chemicals in a test tube, and they put it in a machine that gets hot and cold, and hot and cold. And when it warms up, the DNA separates. It's called the melting temperature. If you take DNA and put it in solution, and put it in a test tube and pass light through that test tube, if you warm that test tube up, all of a sudden, at certain frequencies of light, it'll become a lot more transparent. And what's happened is the DNA has melted. It has separated into two separate strands, two single strands. If you cool it off again, they will re And that is the brilliant secret of the PCR machine. Heat, cold, heat, cold heats up, separates, and in that solution are things called primers. Primers are short pieces of DNA, eh, 15 to 30 letters long, depending on what you're doing. And they're designed to only stick to a very specific piece of DNA. So if it's like, you know, A, C, G, T, T, A, A, C, C, A. And if that sequence is found in only one species on the planet, that is a great place for a primer. You add that to the solution. And when it cools down, the primer sticks. And there's another machine, another protein in there called a polymerase. A polymerase sticks onto the DNA strand right after the primer and makes a copy of the DNA. And it runs until you warm it up again. In the meantime, you have a primer for the other strand of DNA so it can go in the other direction. So as you're warming it up and cooling it down and copying your DNA effectively, every time you go through one of those cycles, you double the amount of DNA present of your target sequence only. This is really cool some great illustrations online and some great videos online on YouTube if you want to go find them. I'll put some in my show notes if you're interested just to see how this works. But as you're amplifying that DNA of your target area, you can detect it once you get enough of it. Now back in my day, we would put it in a gel and we'd run electricity through the gel and the DNA would migrate through the gel depending on how large it was. The larger piece would travel more slowly than the smaller pieces and we have it stained with a cancer causing agent called ethidium bromide that when you shine fluorescent light on it the ethidium bromide will be stuck in the dna it would glow you could actually cut the band out that you wanted and pull the dna out of that work on that even more it's really cool dna technology but that's not what they do with the coronavirus dna test what they do is they also add something called a probe and a probe sticks to the dna between the target primers and as the polymerase is zipping down the dna it runs into the probe and it destroys it but the probe is made of two parts a fluorescent part and a non-fluorescent part and as it destroys the non-fluorescent part the fluorescent part is released into solution and now every time that happens it makes the solution become a little more fluorescent and they put it through a machine and they look for fluorescence coming out of the solution And the more times they cycle it, the brighter it will get and they can detect whether or not you have the coronavirus based on the fluorescence. They're not actually sequencing DNA. They're not running it out in the gel. They're just saying, hey, does this thing glow under ultraviolet light after a couple of cycles through PCR? But they also do a couple of other smart things. And one of the things they do is they pool samples together and test them all at the same time. Since most people who get a coronavirus test aren't actually positive, they don't have to test every sample. And what they do is they make a matrix. They like take sample 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And then for each row, they combine them into one tube. And for each column, they combine them into one tube. And then they only test the combined tubes. Cool. So for 16 samples, they only have to do 8 tests. And... If one of the tubes for a row lights up and one of the tubes from a column lights up, they can use triangulation. They can know exactly which sample was positive. And if a problem happens, like you know a row shows up but a column doesn't, well, they'll go back and they'll do quality control and error correcting and more testing. They might actually test each sample independently if they have a problem like that. So there's ways to get around issues like this. In the end though, the DNA test for coronavirus is highly specific and it's highly accurate. And they look at three different places in the coronavirus genome, two different proteins, one protein in two places, one protein in one place. And it it works really, really, really well. But just a couple of days ago, the New York Times published an article in which they claimed that most people who are positive for coronavirus have extremely low levels of the coronavirus. Yeah, that troubled me greatly. In fact, that article is what propelled me to do all the studying that I'm now presenting to you because I need to know what was going on. If most people have incredibly low levels, maybe there's a false positive. Maybe they're really not sick. Maybe they're really not manufacturing uh, the virus because in PCR, you can get false positives. If you run the cycle many, many, many times, and it turns out they run it like 35 to 40 times, that's a lot. That's you know trillions of fold amplification possibly. You can amplify fake stuff easily or any, even the slightest little contamination will show up in the test, and I was worried. So I did some more research, and I went to covidtracking.com, and I downloaded their data. Thank you, covidtracking, for providing that, and I made some graphs. I made one graph that shows the number of deaths, cases, and tests each week. And sure enough, there's a direct correlation between the number of tests and the number of positive cases. And I said, well, maybe this is just all fake. But no, that's not true, because the second graph that I made, and this is the clincher, i made some ratios i did the ratio of the number of deaths to the number of positives the number of positives to the number of tests and the number of deaths to the number of tests and all these things plateau out so as we've saturated uh, the population with testing we've found out that on average three percent of all the people who have tested positive are now dead that's a pretty serious number. That's not 3% of all peoples. If you have this virus, you've got a 3% chance of actually dying. That's bad, my friends. This is a very serious virus. We should not be treating this lightly. And yet on Facebook, on YouTube, all over social media, Twitter, A lot of people this week have been reporting that only 6% of the people who are dying are actually dying of the coronavirus. And that is a misunderstanding of the statistics. The CDC put out a giant table with all sorts of different uh, ways to add things up. And sure enough, 6% of people dying of coronavirus only have coronavirus. A lot of people dying with coronavirus have diabetes, heart disease, asthma, things like that. But it's not true that only 6% of the people are dying with coronavirus. They're dying of heart failure. They're dying of liver failure. They're dying of breathing issues, things caused by the coronavirus. So this is a gigantic mess of reporting that's been going on forever now because this is not something that we were ready for. The whole reporting system had to be updated. And I tell you what, the next pandemic, we're going to be a lot more careful about how we report things. But for now, the damage has been done and all the misinformation is floating around out there. I tell you what, there's a lot about this coronavirus that i don't know what to think because the experts are contradicting themselves the conspiracy theorists are out there and the the demagogues are out there and all these people who who claim that they know what they're talking about and yet the information's all garbled it's just really hard stuff however to educate oneself means you have a better understanding of what the issues really are and my goal here in presenting to you how they test, what they do, what they're looking for, what the results are, how accurate the results are. That kind of an education helps us understand what's going on in the world around us. Now, I'm going to leave you with a verse. This is Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Now, granted, we're not kings, but compared to the kings of old, we have more knowledge and more free time to study things out. And as we study we learn more about god's creation yeah coronavirus is part of that creation part of the fallen suffering creation and we need to know about it because you know what it's affecting all of us and if we have an understanding of some of the basic science we have a tremendous advantage over a lot of other people who don't know what they're talking about specifically some of the conspiracy theorists let's be very careful as we wade through this water let's be very well educated and let's be sober-minded, because you know what? This is not something to scoff at. This really is a serious thing that is killing a lot of people, and I don't want it to be here, but it is. Therefore, I want to understand it. Before I go, I want to point out that there's copious notes in the links below or on this show episode on biblicalgenetics.com. And as always, I really appreciate the people who support this show through the Buy Me a Coffee app, very easy to find that. Just click on the link if you're online, if you're on biblicalgenetics.com or on YouTube, or if you're listening on a, on a podcast, very easy to find that link. But also, I really appreciate people who promote the show by sharing, by giving me thumbs up, and by leaving me reviews. That helps tremendously because that lets the big guys know that people are watching and therefore they share it with more people. Thank you all for your time, and may God bless you to make wise decisions as we walk through the minefield of misinformation surrounding the coronavirus.